0: What does it mean to keep a diary and then turn it into a book? Author Heidi Julewitz will be here to talk about her new book, A Diary, called The Folded Clock. I think at the time I thought this will lead to something. I never
1: really thought that it would be a book. And in fact, I think one of my original file titles, the first summer I started writing it was, what is this?
0: <laughs> How has modern psychiatry evolved since the days of lunatic asylums and ice pick lobotomies? Jeffrey Lieberman will join us to talk about his new book, Shrinks, the untold story of psychiatry.
2: My father used to love to say it's better to be lucky than smart, and psychiatry was very lucky. Drugs for psychotic disorders, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, anxiety, were accidentally discovered within a decade. They were completely a game changer.
0: Alexander Alter will share her notes from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Heidi Julevitz joins me now. She is the author of The Folded Clock, a diary, which is reviewed this week on our cover by Eula Biss. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Pamela. So you wrote before this uh, novels. How did you decide to write a diary? In part, I did not decide to write a
1: diary, and I think that's... um part of what makes this book so unusual for me in many ways, because it's the first time in my life I never said to myself, okay, I'm writing a book now, you know. Um, And I think I was kind of interested um, in the way that I have a friend who's an artist. And I remember going to see her work in her studio. And she was just sort of showing me everything um, that she was working on, but she kind of had a timeline. She was like, so here's this canvas. And, um, and I started to paint. And then I realized, oh, wow, the paint was like smushing through in this weird way in the back. And then I was like, that's cool. So then I started to do that on purpose and smush the paint through the canvas. And then I decided to make ceramics and whatever. She had this whole process. And I just thought, you know, I've never done that ever in my life. I've never said to myself, I'm just going to sit down and play around and see what happens. I feel like I sit down and I think, all right, this summer I'm going to start writing my novel. And I mean, I say this to myself before I've even written a single word, like before I've even put one sentence on the page, I've decided in my head that this thing is a
0: novel. So it's much more directed and you know what the form is going to be from the get go. And
1: I guess I felt kind of tired by that or I just wanted to try something new. And I was inspired by the way she just sees what she's working on as a as a process and maybe it turns into something, and maybe it leads to something. And so I thought, all right, I'm just going to sit down and start doing this, and maybe it'll just. I think at the time I thought this will lead to something. I never really thought that it would be a book. And in fact, I think one of my original file titles, the first summer I started writing it, was "What is this?"
0: <laughs> so that it would lead to something, but that the something wouldn't be yeah, this what was you were not actually- the
1: thing. I don't think I ever thought this was the thing. Right. And it took a pretty long time for me to realize, oh, maybe I'm writing a book. Or people would ask me, "What are you working on?" And I'd say, I don't know. I'm just
0: writing right now, and I'm just having a really good time. It's not like a diary in many ways. I don't know. Did you think of it originally when the thing became what it was? Did you think of it as necessarily a diary? You know, I did
1: think of it as a a diary, though. It's funny. I guess there are all sorts of different notions of what a diary should be. And I mean, I don't feel like I'm really confessing that much. I I do. I, I talk a lot... I tell a lot about myself, but honestly, it's nothing that I wouldn't tell anybody after talking to them for five minutes. It's not like a deep, deep secret, you know? Um, And I also feel that I wanted to be very protective of other people's identities. That was a very important thing for me because I didn't want other people to feel spied on. And I think maybe it's not so much like a diary in the sense that I am really a lot more interested in other people than I am in myself. So it's a lot about my friends and social connections and how things work and how people respond to certain um situations that might be awkward or sticky and so in that way I guess yeah it's not exactly like a diary but I did really think of it in terms of I was sitting down every day just kind of having a conversation with myself maybe mm-hmm. and so in that way it really did feel like a diary
0: although the major departure um, we should say up front is that it's not chronological which you know it's differentiates not, it from yes. most traditional diaries.
1: yes and the ordering of it was a really um, that kind of was the biggest struggle I think for me once I realized it was a book well problematically because I didn't necessarily start out writing it as a book suddenly I was like how do you how do you make this thing into a book you know right. it's just a lot of material and I did start out I had all these like organizational systems because I'm a big like systems person although that would imply that I'm really organized and I'm so not but I love <laughs> I love a system when it comes to a book maybe not with my life so I came up with all these different topics like Kids and food and mittens and whatever, you know? And so I – and I made eight different category headings and I put it all on the floor, the whole the whole book on the floor. Each diary entry was its own object and then I sorted them all into these different eight topics and then I was like, well, this – topic's kind of like this topic, so I'll collapse those two. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, these two are also kind of locked, so I collapsed those two. And I just kept collapsing and collapsing. And then suddenly, I just had one big pile of book again. Oh, no. I know.
0: (laughs) The organizational failure.
1: It was a total failure of organization again. And so then I just thought, okay, well, maybe this just needs to be about... DJing a mood, right, or like DJing my moods, I guess, which is kind of what, I, what we all do in our lives, right? Right. And so I thought, all right, well, I needed to to make it into this experience that was emotionally varied, and also, um, in terms of the topic that was addressed, varied, like not too much kid, 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 or mm-hmm. writing, 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 or right. So I I had to, I tried to create. Yeah, this kind of varied experience through this terrain that otherwise really had no shaping mechanism.
0: You've also had like four major geographic locations. Yes. Um, yeah. Maine, both of your childhood and your summers today, New York City. Mm-hmm. Berlin, yeah. and Italy. Yes, it was an atypically exciting couple of years for me. I, I mean, maybe. I it hope, sounds very enviable I when hope, you read I it. I hope, I so
1: hope that this is indicative of the way the rest of my life will go. I, I kind of doubt it, but maybe. Yeah, so that was another thing, like varying the locations too. So you don't feel like you're in the same place for too long. And I did think of it as there's this In this, you know, basically when I live in New York all year long and I'm teaching, I do no exercise. It's like I don't even have a body. And then I go to Maine and I think, oh, I have a body and there's exercise I could do with it. And so there's a bike loop that I do in the summers. And I do so much thinking on that bike loop. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that bike loop has done so much to kind of teach me about structure in a weird way, like – if you just sort of let yourself get into the, the ups and literally ups and downs of this bike loop, the hills come at exactly the right time. The intervals of up and down are exactly perfect. And I think weirdly in my head I had this shape somehow that I hope the book now kind of mimics.
0: You gave each entry its own shape by starting it off the same way. Yes. Talk about how you came okay. to the
1: – Just because I kept these diaries when I was a kid that I, I write in the very first entry are really, really – I mean, they're not abysmal. They're just kid diaries, you know. <laughs> There's one that's just like today, officer friendly. Instead of having math, officer friendly came and taught us about the new write on red law that's going into effect on May 1st. You know, I mean, it's literally just this accounting of what happened. Right. We all we all were not Anne Frank, alas, and I. We our... <laughs> were not Anne Frank, and I think I had this myth in my own head that oh, I'd been a writer so early, I had been, you know, clearly on the path since I was a young child to be a writer. Okay, no. If you read these diaries, that's not what these diaries say about the person writing them necessarily. Um, But I did start every day with Today I. Did you do that on
0: purpose? When you were a kid?
1: Well, I was just a very like ritualistic kid, I guess. Like Mm -hmm. many kids are, I have kids now. I now see this is not an atypical kid reaction to the chaos of life. I had the same sweater that I would have my school photograph taken in every year. No matter how small and short. Well, no, I would get a bigger size (laughs) when I grew. (laughs) So there was something very grounding about that. I, 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 everything just felt really out of my control in a way, like time felt out of my control. I just thought, oh, my God, I I, I felt like I took I turned 40 yesterday and like I'm going to be 47 in a couple of weeks. And I swear to God, like these years, I don't know what happened to them. And so to write that those two words down today, I it was just like planting your flag in the sand of mm-hmm. the day. You're like this day happened. But I also really kind of instantly in many cases Ignored those two words because the entry would not be about today and it would not be about me. Sometimes it would lead me into some kind of trigger point, I guess is what it was. Like I'd see the day as a portal to other days.
0: Well, so much of it is about time. It's about time. Um, about it the You know, that it's not linear, that you start off and that even in a given day, it's not just about what's happening in that day, but your memories of yeah. what came before and the associations that you make. OK, it's, sometimes I think about um, hostile cocktail party questions when uh, <laughs> that one is asked uh, when you describe a book. So I imagine someone's going to come up to you and say, isn't this just a memoir? Oh, yeah, maybe it's just a memoir, or someone else has said. Not that there should be a just before memoir. It's just a memoir.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it is a memoir. I guess I think because it is, again, so much about other people, it is about me. I'm the central figure, obviously. I'm the narrator, you know? But my interest isn't necessarily with my life and what happened in my mm-hmm. life.
0: So when it's when it's a diary, it's more about observing others and the relationship imo- yeah. with others as opposed to yeah. an, like, an intense internal examination. Yeah.
1: I mean, and kind of like the Goncourt journals, right? Those mm-hmm. journals that the, the Goncourt brothers, French, hung out with Flaubert and et cetera, but weren't as famous as Flaubert. And this, of course, drove them crazy. And their journals are way more gossipy than my. Mine are, I think, but they really are concerned with like a time and a period. It's a way of kind of establishing a self that's as much about what that self is seeing in the outside world as as what it has to say more directly about itself.
0: Was it a concern for you in terms of how, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you didn't want people's identities to be so explicit about, you know. I think with memoir, people have a, uh, a question they ask, you know, how revelatory should they be about themselves? And some people are very comfortable revealing all about themselves, but not about other people. And how did that work for you?
1: I mean, I think in some ways I only chose incidents where I felt as though I... I came out looking worse than everybody else. <laughs> that seemed <laughs> That's
0: one like good constraining. That seemed, that seemed like a mechanism. fair
1: way to sort of decide decide which entries would go in or what was even worth writing about in the first place. I used each moment if there was some uh, moment of tension or or an argument or a misunderstanding. I was more interested in moments where I felt as though I was really in the wrong or I had done something kind of questionable, not somebody else had done something questionable. So. So in part, I do feel like I I set that, yeah, limitation up early in hopes that other people would be like, yeah, finally, (laughs) finally she sees it the way I saw it. Um, For better or worse, I really, really care about not hurting other people's feelings, which probably is a way of if you wanted to extend it and make it more narcissistic and self-interested, I don't want people to dislike me, Mm -hmm. Right. So there's something both very generous in that act and also sort of self-serving in that act.
0: It's interesting because when you talk to many memoirists um, and they talk about, you know, to-dos and not to-dos with memoir, they say, well, you basically just can't care what everyone else thinks. You just have to be true to yourself and you just have to tell the truth. And they kind of go out in this, you know, very sort of, you know, wrenching honesty. But that was kind of
1: a fun challenge to me because I knew I had to be honest, right? It's a diary. If you're not going to be honest in a diary, where are you going to be honest, you know? So how was I going to be as honest as I could be, but then also really care about not hurting people's feelings? I actually really loved that challenge. That to me felt really exciting because I had to do two completely opposing acts, (laughs) right? Right. Um, And so a lot of what I did was change people's identities in many cases. So I'm hoping people won't even see who they are. I did a lot of scrubbing, you know, but then I also just left a lot of people out who I just thought, my husband can't be hidden because he is my husband. I can't scrub his identity. He he is who he is, but he's not in there so much. and. My parents aren't in there very much. My brother's in there a couple times, you know, but I tried to use people who were definitely going to be identifiable sparingly.
0: And you write about your kids a lot. And that's often a question that people have like, oh, no, when my kids grow up and they read this, what will they think? Did you think of that? All right. Well, interestingly, I have a
1: child who's 10 and a child who's six. And really, literally, just about a month ago, I realized I wouldn't have written this book now. Now, going forward, I wouldn't write a book like this with her in it as much as she is. She's suddenly crossed over from kid who doesn't read and doesn't care to person who's going to read this book someday. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, assuming she continues to know how to read for- <laughs> And her education doesn't move backwards. Obviously, she was going to read it in the future. This was always a a possibility that I was aware of. And so I did write it with that in mind. But I think suddenly I feel this more protective impulse around
0: both of them that really just kind of came about very recently. It might be some reassurance to know that uh, many writers say that their adult children um, have zero interest in going back and reading their books, um, sometimes yeah, it's true. to their chagrin. No, my daughter has no
1: no interest. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that she's interested in is that she named this book, she titled it.
0: So she... yeah, let's talk about that name. How did you decide yeah. to call it The Folded Clock? Yeah, plot? all
1: right. So essentially, um, we were, I was with my kids, and we had been to a museum, and And we'd gotten a little hieroglyphics um, stencil set and a book about hieroglyphics because it was an Egyptian museum. And we were looking at how all of the letters are based on some kind of pictorial something from Egyptian times. And so somebody's letter in the family, I can't remember whose, is based on folded cloth. She asked me, wait, what's that letter? And I said, it's folded cloth. And she said, folded clock? (laughs) And I just instantly said, that is the best title I've ever heard. And it's mine now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's what parents do. And that's what parents do. And, and writers can, do in general. She can sue me for royalties later. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we will end on that note. The book again, as we all now know, is called The Folded Clock um, by Heidi Julevitz. Heidi, thanks so much. Thank you, Pamela. Alexandra Alters here with notes from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi,
3: Pamela. What's new? As you pointed out to me yesterday, there is this book that's selling extremely well. It's actually number one on Amazon right now, and it's by an author I'd never heard of before, and it's a coloring book for grown ups. Well, I have to tell you, Alexandra, that oddly, I went home
0: yesterday from work uh, to see my nine-year-old daughter coloring away in that very book. So the grown-ups part I think is it will remain up in question. But yes, it is actually supposed to be for grown-ups. I think um, that was
3: how she intended it, but it's interesting. It's something I guess the whole family could do. Did you join your, your daughter? I didn't, but kids clearly like coloring books still too. That's um, true. These are these are fairly sophisticated and it's kind of an interesting backstory. They've sold more than a million copies. Um, The book is called The Secret Garden and the author or illustrator is uh, Joanna Basford, who's a British commercial illustrator. She was working for Nike and Absolute Vodka and had put something up online of this computer wallpaper that she designed. And a publisher reached out to her and said, why don't you do an illustrated children's book? And she said, you know, I have another idea. I want to do a coloring book. For adults, it's really beautiful. I it's have to say, very beautiful, and it looks so different once it's all filled in. There's an incredible, you know, slideshow that you can find online. It depends on the age of the person filling it in. Absolutely. Um, in other age group news, um, there was a survey this week done, uh, or a survey released this week that was done of millennials. And it turns out they are still very committed to print reading. About 80% of them prefer to read print books over digital. And second to print, they usually read on uh, e-reading devices or tablets. And then about 36% of them read on mobile, on mobile phones. So.
0: See, kids are up to good things. They are coloring in grown-up exactly. color books. They are
3: reading real print They books. are reading in print. We should all follow their lead. It's good news for publishers. You know, the, um, the latest report in March from the Association of American Publishers showed that revenues were up last year in 2014 over 2013. Print was down a bit, but ebooks have stabilized it around, you know, they're growing around 1%. And this is, you know, when you go back five years, they were growing 20%, 30%. People were saying, at this point in time, we'd be at 90% ebooks, and it's more like, you know, 30%. So the whole market is sort of stabilizing right now, it seems like.
0: Well, we'll undone that very stable note. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) Alexander. Thanks
3: for having me.
0: Jeffrey Lieberman joins me now. He is the author of Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. He is also a professor and chairman of psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and psychiatrist-in-chief of the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center. There are actually more titles, but I'm not going to give them all. Um, Jeffrey, thanks for being here.
2: My pleasure, Pamela. So,
0: um, this is a story and a history of psychiatry. Has that been done before?
2: There have been a number of books that are written about the history of psychiatry, uh, but they have been written in a more scholarly, academic way, um, really as uh, a history of the field, documenting all of the various um, uh, elements and movements. And individuals. Um, What I wanted to do with this was really try and set the record straight in terms of uh, what psychiatry was and what it currently is to try and hopefully cut through much of the stigma uh, about mental illness and the fog and skepticism about psychiatry so that people would have a clear, objective. Uh, Understanding and if they needed treatment, they would know, you know, how to seek it and whether it was going to be helpful or not.
0: And it's interesting um, and clearly non-academic with the title "shrinks" that you chose that word, which is uh, often considered a derogatory term. Why did you decide to call the book "shrinks"?
2: Well, in all candor, it wasn't my title. Uh, That's so
0: often the case.
2: (laughs) I I was coming to the uh, publisher uh, with a proposal and some working titles along the lines of Pariahs in the Palace of Medicine or Sojourn in the Scientific Wilderness. And uh, editor says, nah, that ain't going to work. And I said, well, what do you suggest? And she says, well, give me a couple of days. And after, I guess, you know, sort of talking around the office, they came back to me and says, here's your title, Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. And I said, well, isn't that a little bit demeaning? And she goes, demeaning, shmeaning. Do you want to write for your colleagues or do you want to sell books? And you decided to sell books. It's not so much the commercial motive as it is. is The motivation for me was really I've been in psychiatry as a researcher and as a clinician treating people for 30 years. And it became apparent that psychiatry is clearly um, the black sheep of medicine, the the runt of the litter of medical specialties. And um, although there's many truthful elements to that, it's still seeing it through the lens of what it used to be instead of what it currently is.
0: I mean, if you look back at any early days of any field of medicine, um, there's all kind of uh, terrible things that went on um, before we had a a better understanding. But is psychiatry especially prone to that, to quacks or, yes, you're nodding.
2: Yes. uh, That's unfortunately the case there. In the book, there are uh, uh, a number of uh, descriptions of people who played significant historical roles. And uh, I sort of cast them as uh, heroes or villains. Mm-hmm. Um, and psychiatry was particularly fertile ground for charlatans and uh, um, con men and snake oil salesmen. Why? Because the science was soft.
0: When did this improve significantly?
2: Not till relatively recently. I mean, all of medicine evolved really in terms of uh, a modern medicine within a 200-year period beginning in the 19th century. Psychiatry was sort of the runt of the litter, took the longest, uh, it was a late bloomer, um, and it really didn't begin to bloom uh, until after World War II in the 1950s. And then uh, that only occurred uh, not by its own doing, but by uh, dint of some serendipitous events. You know, my father used to love to say it's better to be lucky than smart, and psychiatry was very lucky. Drugs for psychotic disorders, depression, Uh, bipolar disorder, anxiety, were accidentally discovered within a decade. They were completely a game changer.
0: And what was that decade?
2: The 1950s, 1960s. Mm -hmm. So you went from a field that throughout history knew virtually nothing about the underlying basis in the brain of mental illness to a field that by the mid-1960s, had highly effective treatments for the major conditions for which it was responsible that could suppress symptoms and prevent relapses. So it went from a relatively unknowledgeable field that was therapeutically impotent to one that had highly effective treatments that were life-changing for millions of people.
0: You mentioned um, that all of medicine sort of occurred in this two hundred year period, but but obviously there are origins earlier. When did our concept of, of psychiatry begin, and
2: how did it evolve? Well, the ancient sort of origins of medicine involved some speculative theories about mental dysfunction as well as physical dysfunction. And you had Hippocrates and you had um, Galen and you had um, some of the ancient physicians. But modern medicine really began at the end of the or 18th century, and beginning of the 19th century. At the time, there was no specialization in medicine. You know, now we've got 30, 40 specialties, dermatology, allergy, uh, oncology, pediatrics. Um, but back then, you had surgeons and physicians. Some people were bone doctors. You had midwives. Um, there were specialists and dentists, but that was it. Um, psychiatry was actually one of the first specialties, and it was in the early 19th century that the brain doctors emerged. And it wasn't psychiatrists; it was psychiatrists and neurologists. But then they diverged, and they diverged in the following way: that uh, when people had brain injuries that we now know as strokes or tumors um, or incapacitating you know, muscular diseases or trauma, the brain doctors that took care of them in the hospital became neurologists, um, whereas doctors that cared for people who had mental disorders. And at the time, what was thought to be the leading and most humane way to treat people with mental disorders was to take them out of society and put them in an asylum, in an institution, in a a remote area uh, where a structured, humane, hygienic environment could be created for them. And so psychiatrists became uh, essentially asylum superintendents, and that accorded them a name which no longer is used now but was similarly uh, you know, derogatory as shrinks. They were called alienists hmm. because they lived and presided over a community alien to society. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association was the first professional specialty organization started in
0: 1844. Are psychiatry and neurology now
2: converging? They're converging in terms of uh, um, informational content and uh, knowledge base. They're both disciplines that focus on the brain. But I don't think they're going to reconverge as a single medical specialty for the following reason. The brain is, by orders of magnitude, exponentially more complex than any other organ in the body. Um, The heart is a pump. The kidney is a filter. The gastrointestinal tract is a porous tube. The brain has 100 billion neurons, 30 trillion connections. Each part of the anatomy of the uh, brain has different functions, different architectural organizations of its cells, but is com- connected through to almost every other part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So you have this enormously complex machine that has to operate in coordination with every other part and conduct myriad functions simultaneously. While we're sitting here talking, you know, you're controlling your temperature, your breathing, your heart rate. Uh, if you want to move, it's moving without you thinking about it. You may be hungry. Or you may be thirsty. Uh, but at the same time, you're concentrating on what I'm saying. You're thinking what you're going to ask me. You may be also sort of musing, "Well, what did I you know, have to do when I get home tonight? Creativity comes from this. Personality comes from this. So to deconstruct the brain... Uh, it took a, a very, very long time, and frankly, we didn't have the tools until relatively recently.
0: It seems like there are these trends in um, psychiatry. Things go in and out of fashion similar to the way they go in and out of fashion in education or child-rearing that everyone uh, – you went through this period of lobotomies, and then everyone moved away from it, and then there seems to be a – a revisiting lobotomies, um, or there was a period where people went back and said, actually, maybe they weren't so bad, or they could be done in a certain way. And the same thing goes with talk therapy versus medication versus institutionalization. Is psychiatry especially prone to these kind of trends and reversals?
2: I think if any sort of scientific discipline, particularly in medicine, is prone to these changes or oscillations when uh, it's really trying to acquire or grasping at a knowledge base. Well, let's take autism. When I went to medical school, we read about it briefly, but we never saw patients. It wasn't a big thing. We knew nothing about it. Nobody paid any attention about it. It wasn't even described in the medical literature until 1943, and then nobody paid much attention to it. But in the 1990s, uh, some prominent people's children or grandchildren were affected by it. They took them to the top hospitals in the country, and they said, there's not much we can do for this. This is well. What is it caused by? Well, we don't know. Well, you know what what goes wrong? We're not sure. So, are there any treatments? No. At least, how can this be? It was hiding in plain sight for centuries. It's not an ill new illness. You then had this rush to try and develop uh, a, some knowledge through research and treatments that occurred, and now it's it's a cause celeb. Um, so, medicine will. Adopt sort of approaches to uh, a given illness. Same thing with AIDS when it came Mm -hmm. out. We didn't know what AIDS was. And the the, the initial swings between one theory and that theory may be wild um, until there's traction that's gained. We understand this is the cause, it affects the organ in this way. We can think about treating it in the following ways. Um, In psychiatry, the first, the 19th and the first half of the 20th century, there was no traction, scientifically speaking. So you found this oscillation between a biologically driven approach, malaria therapy, lobotomies, um, and a psychodynamically or metaphysical approach, you know, psychoanalytic theory. But with the advent, beginning with psycho- psychopharmacology, but then following that, neuroimaging, so we could take high-resolution images in a non-invasive way, PET scanning. Mm-hmm. Um, molecular genetics to begin sort of peeling the onion with the identification of genes that may contribute to risk for illness, the growth of neuroscience, which took all the basic science disciplines and focused it on trying to understand brain function. Psychiatry was sort of pulled along into this. And as a result of that, it now has scientific foundation, and also it has a basis for understanding how its treatment works. But uh, the important point to make, though, is that Prior to really the 1950s, the effort to sort of acquire information and utilize it in some fashion of a theory and a treatment was not scientifically driven. In fact, uh, Freud, who I admire greatly and who initially attracted me into psychiatry and is a brilliant man, um, his biggest mistake was that he was so controlling, he Mm -hmm. refused to allow psychoanalytic theory to be subjected to scientific verification and thus his disciples basically accepted it as the dogma, just like a religion. Right
0: many still do. Let's talk about diagnosis for a minute. It, with other fields of medicine, um, the, you know a disease is identified and there's a diagnosis and there might be refinements within a diagnosis of, say, breast cancer that occur over time. But psychiatry, um, it seems like the diagnoses sort of slip in and out. So most notoriously, homosexuality was considered a diagnosis in the DSM. You mentioned autism earlier and um, one aspect of, of autism. Asperger's uh, was just sort of taken out of the the, the DSM. How is diagnosis different within psychiatry um, from other fields of medicine?
2: It's not as different as you might think, you know, reading about the discussions in the media. Um, all medical illnesses are codified in what's called the ICD, International Classification of Disease, which is maintained by the World Health Organization. And this is for every disease of every organism, including mental illness. And what the ICD provides is a name, the diagnosis, and then a number. And it's for medical record keeping, insurance, uh, and so forth. Um, but the DSM, that's the American Psychiatric Association's diagnostic volume, it provides for these names, these name diagnoses, a very detailed description in terms of criteria which define the disorder. The first iteration of this approach to try and systematize diagnosis, if we had a blood test, an x-ray, an EKG for the brain or we knew a way to identify the cause of the illness by doing a, you know, a culture and identifying a bacteria or a virus, um, we would do it. Right. But mental illness has not been uh, really uh, the causes and the pathologic bases have not been defined in a way that allows us to do it. So how do we do it? We do it by defining the symptoms in the same way that we define diagnosis of migraine headache. There's no test for a migraine headache. You describe the symptoms and the neurologist will tell you, I think you have a migraine. Take this medicine. Or if you have irritable bowel syndrome, um, similar, no definitive diagnosis. Asthma, similarly. But that's just one of many medical diagnoses for which there are definitive tests. Mm -hmm. In psychiatry, there's no definitive test. It's all uh, descriptive symptom-based. So the DSM basically provides this kind of detailed description to allow for consistency from doctor to doctor. Whereas before, it was highly subjective and highly variable. You could go to 10 psychiatrists and they would give you 10 different diagnoses. So when you say diagnoses slip in and out, um, of course, the, the best example appropriately so is homosexuality. So that you know, was just a, a dark period, a stain on psychiatry reputation. It wasn't that psychiatry you know, really formulated something we're going to call this, like we're going to call blonde hair you know, pathologic or being left-handed pathologic. We were really being used by society Mm -hmm. as an instrument of their moral prejudices. And uh, we were complicit.
0: Are there other trends that are sort of directions that psychiatry is moving in, in terms of diagnosis?
2: Yes. I I think, you know, we are really in, at the beginning of a golden age of psychiatry. And, uh, you know, when people hear that, they say, oh, you know, I've heard that before, and you know, where's the you know where's the beef? But I I, I do, and it's because the science and the technology is uh, becoming more sophisticated, more powerful. Just like we've sequenced the genome, we now have means of uh, you know sequencing an individual's uh, uh, entire genome um, quickly for a reasonable price. The New York Genome Center here, which has one of the most powerful sequencing capacities in the country, can do whole genome sequence, not just your exomes, but all of the other genes as well, for Mm $1,500. And that cost, just like with computer equipment, will come down. Um, So all of medicine is being revolutionized by this, and the the term that's used is precision or personalized medicine. Uh, We thought that psychiatry, as it often is, it will be the last to benefit from this technological advance turns out that it's happening right now very quickly. I'll give you two examples. One uh, was publicly announced already, Glenn Close, um, who's been very outspoken about her family's history of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, her uh, sister and nephew were in a research study in Boston, and the researcher you know, genotyped them as part of the study and found that they had a gene which um, was overexpressing uh, the gene product that it produced, which was an enzyme that metabolized an amino acid called glycine. And glycine is important for acting as a modulator of one of the most important neurotransmitter receptors in the brain, the glutamate-NMDA receptor, involved with memory, uh, coding information. Because they had an overexpression of this, they thought, well, maybe... There's uh, too little glycine functioning because it's being deactivated too Mm -hmm. quickly. So they gave them supplemental glycine in addition to the other psychotropic medications they were taking, and their symptoms melted away.
0: What kind of symptoms were they?
2: Basically thought disorganization, delusional thinking, and hallucinations.
0: And there was another example?
2: The other one we're working on right now. um, There's a study that uh, one of our uh, junior faculty is doing um, in the Old Order Amish which are an inbred kind of founder population, and he identified a certain mutation in um, a gene the, uh, that produces a s- protein in the what's called mTOR signaling pathway. Now, this signaling pathway has been very important in the study of cancer because it regulates sort of cell cycling. Treatments have been developed based on it. Nobody ever thought about this being a treatment for a mental illness, but the phenotype of this mutation in the uh, autistic uh, Amish population uh, is if you're heterozygous, you have symptoms of psychosis mm-hmm. or aut- autistic-like symptoms. If you're homozygous, you have those, plus you may also be prone to seizure disorders. So um, we're doing a study now where we're using a cancer drug to treat the mental disorder in these individuals who have this genetic mutation. We never would have thought about using it if we hadn't done this genetic study and discovered this mutation,
0: so I have to ask, where is the couch in all of this? Um, we often think of you have a couch actually on the cover of your book. Um, how big a role does talk therapy still play in psychiatry?
2: Huge, huge, and 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 uh, I, I make a, a, an explicit point in the book of saying, you know, this isn't either or. You know, the oscillations which characterize psychiatry between the biologic and the psychodynamic are over and um I, the term i use to describe as pluralistic uh, which is to say that oh yes medications have an essential role to play just like if you have diabetes you know you probably need insulin or an oral hy- hypoglycemic but that doesn't mean you can you know eat like a pig mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can you know not exercise and take care of yourself there's a lifestyle component that uh, still me- needs to be maintained with mental illness particularly since it's affecting the brain, it's affecting the parts of the brain that make you behave and you know, define who you are, that relationship, that physician-patient relationship is more important. I mean, it's essential, it's integral to every. even with surgeons it's integral, but you know, with your primary care doctor, your gynecologist, but uh, with your psychiatrist, it's integral. And virtually nobody that I know, and I, I in my practice, nobody receives medication alone unless, you know, the patient wants it that way. You know, I'm fine. All I need to get is every six months, you know, checked on my lithium level or make sure that my dose is right of my antidepressant. Um, But with most individuals, it's a combination of psychotherapy. Now, the difference is, is that the psychotherapy, it could be psychoanalytic, Mm -hmm. but it's not, uh, the majority of psychotherapy is not psychoanalytic. Um, It's now a type of a treatment that has been developed in a scientifically driven way. It says, what are the elements of the treatment? How is it manualized so that each person can institute it uh, uh, similarly and properly? What's its duration that it needs to be administered by? So with this way and then study it to show what its efficacy is. So in this way, cognitive behavioral therapy has been developed, right. uh, uh, interpersonal therapy. Parent-child interactive therapy, that kind of Parent-child interactive dialectical behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing. There's a variety. So the, the relationship is still uh, really an essential part of it, as it should be in any uh, uh, physician-patient uh, situation. But it's not
0: necessarily decades of going over one's childhood experiences. No,
2: no. it's 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 psychoanalytic uh, psychotherapy is still a very uh, popular and, and uh, in some cases effective treatment, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a luxury. And it's, I would say, sort of a niche treatment at this point.
0: I'm just going to end with a startling statistic from your book that one in four people will suffer from mental illness at some point in life. Um, that's pretty amazing. And I imagine will translate into many potential readers uh, for the book. Um, thank you so much for being here.
2: My pleasure, Pamela. Anytime.
0: Uh, The book again is Shrinks the Untold Story of Psychiatry by Jeffrey Lieberman. (music) Greg Coles has bestseller news. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Well, uh, there are three new titles on
4: the hardcover fiction list this week, starting down at the bottom at number 16, a debut novel by the poet Jill Alexander Esbaum called *Housefrau*. that is sort of an updated version of Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina. It is the story of a bored housewife in Switzerland this time whose name is, in fact, Anna.
0: You know, I have to give a little shout-out to the um – uh, reporting skills of Alexander Alter, our publishing reporter here at The Times, who, when this galley came in, she was like, Oh, this book is going to be big um, <laughs> about she, six months ago.
4: She has a nose for it. She knows all. It, it may have had to do with the explicit sex scenes in the book.
0: That tends to work.
4: <laughs> um, at number four, then, um, Jacqueline Winspear continues her best selling Maisie Dobbs series. Uh, which started out really around World War One, but has moved now to 1937. Maisie Dobbs is a um, psychologist, a former psychologist, who is now a private investigator. Um, and this book is set in Gibraltar in 1937. It's called A Dangerous Place, new at number four. Finally, um, the third new title on the list this week, new at number three, Uh, continues James Patterson and Marshall Karp's NYPD Red series. It's the third book in the series. It has the imaginative title, NYPD Red 3.
0: Okay. And nonfiction?
4: <laughs> uh, in nonfiction, there are two new titles. Uh, new at number 12, the New York Times' own Frank Bruni uh, has a book about college admissions called Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, um, arguing against the kind of high stakes um, self-pressure to get into an Ivy League college um, or, or the equivalent of an Ivy League college. And he says, really, you can succeed well, even out of state colleges. He himself went to University of North Carolina, and chose not to go to Yale, where he had also gotten in. So it's it's a book, uh, a reassuring book at this time it's of okay year. It's okay if
0: you didn't get into Harvard <laughs> or, yes. you know. Um,
4: and then another Frank, uh, new at number 11, Barney Frank, the former Massachusetts representative, has a memoir called Frank, reviewed in our pages, actually, by Frank Bruni.
0: I was not allowed to use the headline Frank on Frank. It was too <laughs> punny.
4: <laughs> so uh, Frank, Barney Frank's memoir, uh, Looking back at his life in and out of Congress and in and out of the closet, um, Barney Frank is probably the most famous gay politician of, of the last 30 to 40 years or so. He's talking about how he started out um, in politics needing to keep his sexual identity private. There was a lot of shame in being gay uh, and a lot of pride in being in government and saying that that has pretty much flip-flopped now, that it's okay to be gay and there's a lot of shame associated with uh, being a politician. That book is new at number 11.
0: All right, then. And that's it. That's it. <laughs> okay, we're done. Thanks, Greg.
4: <laughs> Thanks, Pamela.
0: Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.